This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we explore topics of interest to people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, and thank you for taking your time to listen to this podcast. I'm truly grateful that you would do that, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. If you are a regular listener, you'll recognize today's guest, John Huey. He's been on here about a dozen times before, and today he's here to talk about atheism and sobriety based upon an essay he wrote that we'll be posting in the show notes. But before we get into that, I would like to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. If you're seeking a tangible way to maintain accountability and prove sobriety to loved ones, you have to try Soberlink. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, they've created a remote alcohol monitoring system that revolutionizes the way people document sobriety. The system includes a breathalyzer and uses artificial intelligence to display your test results in a calendar format, helping you analyze your habits and prove to yourself and others that you are, in fact, not drinking. It even has real-time results, facial recognition, and tamper detection, so no one will question the validity of your results. Soberlink and I have created a guide called Five Tools and Strategies for Those on a Secular Path to Recovery that you can find at soberlink.com bbs. So if you're ready to take the next step in your recovery journey, mention the Beyond Belief Sobriety podcast when ordering Soberlink, and you'll receive $50 off their device. And now, episode 250, Atheism and Sobriety. Our guest today is John Huey. He has appeared on several episodes of this podcast, and he's pretty popular, I must say. He has been abstinent from alcohol also for over 30 years, and his approach to recovery has always been practical and secular. Uh, He writes poetry and is the author of The Moscow Poetry File, which was published by Finishing Line Press in November of 2017. He's also published numerous articles on the websites AA Agnostica, AA Beyond Belief, and and I'm sure many others. You can learn more about John and his writings and his past appearances on this podcast at his website, john-huey.com. So today's topic is the first in a series on atheism and sobriety and concerns itself with an article that uh, John wrote regarding the how I understand it, the ethical moral compass of an atheist and why it's not necessary to rely on on a higher power and in fact is insulting when uh, it's implied in 12-step meetings. So I really want John to expand on that and we will have a conversation ensue that I hope will be enlightening for everybody. John, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Yeah, this is uh, sort of a a bigger bite than I thought it was going to be initially. It's very intellectual. About it. Yeah, I have uh, one of my academic uh, consultants, uh, a very sort of well-known guy that you know. I won't I won't name him at the moment, but I've already had somebody that I really respect in our field who's overseas take a look at the article, and I got positive feedback. So that I, I've had at least one independent, you know, look at this with somebody I respect. So I think I've got the right approach. But there's not much thinking about this. And when I say this, I mean the whole aspect of atheism and recovery. There's very little out there on this. There's volumes and 
you know, reams of dissertations and books and scholarly works regarding atheism. I actually have my, you know, there's a, a very comprehensive uh, book that's books has just been published in the UK, very expensive, unfortunately. But uh, there's a, the Oxford, I mean, the Cambridge uh, History of Atheism has just been published. And it's on its way over to me. It just came out this month. And I don't purport to be anything like any of the people that appear in the Cambridge history of atheism. I'm not an academic or a scholar in this field in, in, in any way. I mean, it encompasses uh, hundreds of years of uh, Western and Eastern history. And, uh, you know, things that are in terms of the academic credentials required to present it in that way, uh, way outside of my scope. You know, uh, when you said that there hasn't been much written about on the subject of atheism and, and recovery, you're, you're really right. But I thought you were going to say, on the other hand, there are volumes and volumes and volumes written for the religious and oh, <laughs> religious well, folks. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's like, I mean, if people even, I was thinking again about this today, about how to, uh, get into this whole thing. There are these people that talk about the so-called way of life of the 12 step person. What I've never even, I, I, if, if, if I make it through till January the 3rd, it being the middle of December, I, I, I genuinely hope so. You know, I'll have 35 years of being around here and I've never been able to figure out what the so-called <laughs> way of life is, you know, it just, it, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. So, you know, what I'm not talking, what I'm, what I'm going to be talking about here is not the way of life of the atheist. It's the manner of thinking. I'm not going to go into any kind of program speak or, you know, uh, you know, a programmed learning approach so that, you know, you poor atheists out there can learn how to do it my way or anything like that. I'm going to talk about the manner of thinking in my own mind that's provided a solid foundation for recovery or in my case from al alcoholism in other cases drugs in other cases alcohol and drugs but you know they're all pretty similar in terms of the you know the the net goal and the net effect but as the atheist manner of approaching reality is applied to this, it's wildly un misunderstood. Now, the world at large has more misunderstandings about who and what an atheist is than the people that are associated with the recovery communities we're both familiar with that cater to people that are atheist or agnostic or people of non-belief or free thinkers. People call themselves all sorts of things. Uh, but even within our own community, when I read the, uh, and, you know, I still am sort of a devoted reader of some of the secular Facebook pages and other, you know, broadsides and communications that come out from our community, it seems that there's a lot of confusion about who and what an atheist is as it regards recovery. And when you say community, you're talking about AA members who identify as agnostic, atheist, or free thinkers, right? 
AA members or smart recovery members oh, okay. or life. Okay, I got you. Or, so really anyone, anyone who's whatever program they're in. Okay, I, I understand. Or combination of programs they're in or whatever. I'm becoming less and less enamored of programs the older I get and more and more enamored of net results. What I want to talk about here. Programs are not of great interest to me anymore. They used to be much more of an interest years ago. But the net results of our thought patterns and how they uh, impact our recovery and our ongoing and continued sobriety are extremely important to me. And one of the greatest misconceptions about atheists is that somehow or another, because we don't have a a concept of God, higher power, many of us don't even use the word or consider the word spiritual or spirituality or any of that other stuff, that we somehow lack a moral center. And that is absolutely patently false. And my feeling is, is that even some people that are in our secular recovery communities somehow or another get the impression that they have to kowtow or uh, ostensibly believe or somehow encompass some sort of programmed approach that's based on spiritual principles in order to recover. Again, it's a mystery to me. As I've said before and written before many times, I woke up one morning at age 12 and discovered that I didn't believe that stuff anymore. And I come from a long line of hundreds of years of European Christians, Calvinists, Huguenots, Presbyterians, the works, right? So I I had a thorough indoctrination as a young child, but from a very, very young age, I categorically rejected all of that stuff and have not carried any baggage from a religious tradition into my adult life. It just, it's not relevant to me. So when I encounter people, uh, yourself and others, who talk about having come to their non-belief over a long period of time and having disengaged as adults from, you know, religious institutions and programs and, you know, thought patterns, that's a different thing than where I'm coming from as a person, as an individual. But um, I think that much of, much of maybe what we're going to talk about here today, uh, tonight, is, uh, is relevant regardless of when and how you came to your unbelief. You know, I'm, I'm a little mystified by people that are still influenced by spiritual beliefs, knowing them to be untrue. But that's not what I want to talk about in this particular conversation. I'm very lucky. I have a real good atheist family here at home. Uh, My wife and I share very similar views. She comes from a different culture. She comes from a a culture from uh, Kazakhstan, Central Asia. And when I I discuss a lot of my, uh, uh, I don't discuss a lot of this recovery stuff with her because it it doesn't apply to her. She doesn't have our issues. But um, I, I do discuss what we think about and talk about. And when I was discussing with her about the, uh, uh, you know, the, this series and what I was going to start off with was a moral center. Uh, 
She said, well, that's exactly what the Kazakhs had out on the steppe hundreds and thousands of years ago. And I said, what, really? And, and I said, is it like natural law? And she said, yeah, exactly. That's what it was, natural law. You know, you don't steal the other guy's animals. You don't murder your neighbor. You don't steal your best friend's wife. You know, you don't do certain things to keep peace in the tribe so that the society can continue and grow and and prosper. All right. And this goes back to a time before the, you know, the uh, the Muslims uh, showed up in Central Asia. This goes back to the times of when the tribes out there were animist and uh, shamanistic in their beliefs and having nothing to do even with the uh, uh, the Muslim religion, which became predominant there before the Soviets showed up and stamped all that foolishness, much of that stuff out, at least for a time. So, you know, th- this is not something that's just unique to Western culture or unique to the... Uh, 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 the people in from the United States or Europe, it's it's a it's a universal set of concepts that applies to any culture, any language, or you know any set of philosophical beliefs. And I'm not going to maintain in this that being an atheist, being a lifelong non-believer, not believing in any of these underlying spiritual ideas, has any superiority in terms of my moral context to someone that arrived at it a different way, be it Christian, Hindu, Muslim, whatever. I do insist, though, that when we're dealing with people in the outside world or we're dealing with people in our recovery communities, that we very clearly say that because we are atheists, We have nothing to apologize for in terms of the way and the manner in which we can lead a reasonable life. And do you feel that there are those in the recovery community or maybe even just an organization maybe that's involved with recovery that does that, that does make it? Absolutely. There's an organization that has no name that has two initials that start with the first letter of the alphabet. You know, which I try not to use at all anymore, not having any involvement with them whatsoever. But yeah, I mean, that's what that's all about. You know, I've already gone down that rabbit hole in other podcasts. You know, people can look at my talk about the steps from Toronto and, uh, you know. There's plenty of material with you on that, for sure. Yeah, there's, 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 there's plenty of stuff about them and that and those 12 and all that stuff. But yeah, sure, there's a lot of pejorative views about non-believers and a definite implication that the only way to a moral path is that way or a way that's similar or the belief that the belief somehow magically, John, the belief that something that isn't there is going to take you to a higher path. You know, what's funny, uh, ironic in a way is that I, I, I remember being told as a newcomer that you're not a bad person, you're a sick person, you're just someone trying to get well, you're not a bad person. But then you go through this process where it's like you say, you're going to have a way of life, you're going to, you know, you're going to expunge your character defects. So what's a character defect if you're if you're a good person? So, 
yeah, it's odd that it's presented one way, but in fact, uh, the process that you go through does imply that there's something wrong. And you have to believe in some sort of a supernatural power to get right. Well, the only thing you have to do is believe in a few principles that are based on natural law. But you see what I'm saying, though? That's what's that's what that's what you're being confronted with is absolutely absolutely right. and there's that residual effect of people that say they're atheists and behave otherwise now that is an interesting deal i was probably one of those and probably drove you crazy at the time well we might have had a few chats about that <laughs> early on okay uh, uh but which we which we got over but uh yeah well that that's that's the thing. Hardcore atheists like me are often viewed negatively, not by just the world at large, but by people within our community that say, oh, how could he be this, that, or the other because he's so hardcore? I have heard people use the term atheist almost synonymous with bad. <laughs> you know, oh, seriously, yeah, absolutely, seriously. <laughs> absolutely. No doubt about it whatsoever. But, you know, if we have so constituted our lives that what I'm going to call and what I call in the article, and I'm not literally following this article, you know, line by line or paragraph by paragraph, it's going to be published in conjunction with this talk and people can make out of that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you for that, by the way. It's a really well-written article. Well, thank you. I've got to write, uh, now I've got to write four more of them. And this was, you know, this was like pulling teeth, getting the first one out. I'm glad I'm giving myself a year to complete this project. Uh, hopefully, we'll get it done by our next uh, international convention next uh, October. That's what I'm aiming for. But in, in any event, the underlying idea is, is that we can live a moral life without any of the other baggage that people imply you have to have to have a moral center. Why do people necessarily feel that that baggage is so vital to even someone like myself that wasn't, you know, that never was imbued with the baggage? I certainly was imbued with the fact that I couldn't steal, for example. That was impressed upon me at a very young age. I was very clearly told that I couldn't gratuitously harm others and expect to get away with it. I was very clearly told that I was not above the law. Well, there are plenty of Christians that say they're Christian, but act like they're above the law. And I'm sure there are a few atheists that behave that way. But I was convinced as a very young child that I wasn't above the law. And, you know, that there's a famous, uh, I just saw Bob Dylan a, a week or two ago, and uh, he's still wonderful, by the way. But one of my favorite lines of his, uh, before his Christian conversion experience that he had in the late 70s is, to live outside the law, you must be honest. And that has all kinds of deeper implications. Uh, I mean, when I think of that phrase, I think, to live outside the so-called moral imperatives of the majority culture, you must be honest. Mm, good point. You can't reject 
their imperatives without picking up the essence of what I'm again calling a moral center from somewhere. And in my case, when I looked around the world and, you know, we have, you know, various people, good friends of ours that are all involved in the real discipline of philosophy. But, you know, I came up and, and again looked at the most common definition of what natural law is. And the most common definition, and I'll read this, but I won't read a lot of this stuff. The most common definition that I could come up with of what natural law is goes like this. There's a body of unchanging moral principles regarded as a basis for all human conduct. Say it again. A body of unchanging moral principles regarded as a basis for all human conduct and or an observable law relating to natural phenomena. That's the part I like as well, because not only do we have to, or not have to, but to claim that we are moral under the impetus of natural law, understand some of the universal rules of human conduct, we have to observe what's around us as it relates to the natural world and the natural phenomena and what happens and what we do when we go outside of those parameters. Now, we're faced with these programs that are based on spiritual forces, higher power, God, and things that we know that are, if we are in fact atheists, which I am, things that we absolutely know are untrue. So how do we encompass that while we're looking for another path? How do we find that other path? How do we understand the other path? In my case, when I got, I, I, I had all of these underlying moral principles, but certainly my conduct in the, particularly in the later stages of my drinking years, did not necessarily comport with all of the things regarding a moral center under natural law that I knew to be true. I'm not claiming that I was a saint all the way along, okay? Or even that I'm a saint today. It's just that it was very clear to me, particularly from the early days when I first get it, started getting sober all those years ago, that, you know, I had... I had been under, sort of been under a cloud, had been under a cloud of misdirection and had gotten confused about my own direction in life. And in my case, the way in which I got re-centered, which is I've, I'm, I'm not at all a fan of what we might call conventional meetings, start and end with certain readings and have certain plaques and things on the wall or anything like that. But I'm a great fan of our secular meeting, which, you know, still is under the rubric of those initials that I've been going to here since 1988. And what I learned in there, going back to the earliest days, and I did learn in other meetings and in conventional meetings, what I did learn was that I could come back to try to sort of get to that moral center through listening to my fellow alcoholics and addicts describe how their lives had changed as the fact, as a 
result, a net result of stopping. Yes. And, and you've been clear on that in previous articles, that it's abstinence itself that reforms the behavior or whatever you, how you want to word it. It's, it's abstinence itself that gives us that, I guess, the right way to think. So, yes, abstinence itself. And now I'll say something that will really piss some of them off. I believe that true abstinence is based on self-reliance. Oh, interesting. Not just the absence of drinking I believe, I believe that it's, it's also, as my thinking has started to evolve on this, and it's the polar opposite of what people in these programs tell you. Well, you're right. This is kind of interesting because, you know, the one thing that always has frustrated me about, um, and I'll just say the initials AA, the thing that has frustrated me about that is sobriety is, give, is given a different definition than just the abstinence of drinking. Sobriety is, is given like, like it's defined as some sort of moral um, way of being. For example, you will hear people often say, oh, he's not sober, he's a dry drunk. You know, because he is, he has not act, he has not done the program and he's not living the way, blah, blah, blah. I've always had a problem with that. Why can't sobriety just be sobriety, not drinking? Well, sobriety and based on what you know to be true yourself. I always felt whether I was drinking or not drinking in my own cosmology, in my own little world, that the personal outcomes for me and for others were mostly based And when you analyze those outcomes, we're mostly based on a factual appraisal of the life circumstances as they presented themselves to me. I knew that I was an alcoholic long before I quit. I had made a very critical appraisal of my lifestyle when I was in my mid-20s, and I knew intellectually that lifestyle was not good for me. Now, there's a lot of mystery surrounding that fact because I continued to drink for about another 13 years from age 25 to age 38. Anyway, I talked about that part. But, you know, when I critically evaluate everything that I was doing and saying and thinking, I don't think I ever got away from a bedrock personal understanding of what actually was going on around me at root. What the alcohol did was confuse that understanding and cause actions and activities that were antithetical to that. I believe that I already had the understanding within me, but that it was the alcohol itself that suppressed that understanding. And that makes sense to me. But I want to get that understand what you're talking about when you're saying that self-reliance is incorporated into sobriety. Is that because we were not self-reliant when we were drinking problematically? Well, we were we were we were not. This is going to be fully developed and yet. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, that's fine. Which right. just sounds like a wash. Since I'm from Washington, it sounds like one of those Washington pot uh, cop outs. But uh, no, I mean. If you are really viewing your sobriety critically, you are, you are relying on yourself and the data that presents itself to you, not the stuff you're hearing from other people 
in terms of your ultimate direction. Okay, I, that makes sense Your to me. ultimate direction comes from you, not from someone else. These program people, even these so-called secular way of life 12-steppers, imply that your direction comes from somewhere else. Now, the examples you use to enhance your life and enhance your understanding of your direction, you see in the observable world. And you properly and correctly incorporate those observations into what you know to be true. Now, again, it's going to be further, further examination is called for of that. But that's a general idea of where, and it does sort of fit into this whole idea of natural law, moral center, something that arises naturally from what is true, not what is given to you by someone else, by something that you know to be true as a result of engaging in the material world. Right. This reminds me of uh, just the of what this country was founded on, the idea of natural law or John Locke, that that um, our rights are natural. No. Well, I mean, it's in, in, in given to us by God, you know, you know, there's somewhere in there it says given to us by God. Oh, gosh, it's amazing how things were changed and perverted over the years. Remember that in God, we trust wasn't on the money until like the 50s? 1955 or something. So these things have been imposed little by little from the outside. You know, Thomas Jefferson wasn't exactly the most religious guy. No, he wasn't on Earth, even though he violated natural law by violating the natural rights of his fellow human being in the most fundamental way. But we're not. It's not a seminar seminar on Jefferson. But you know what you what you hear about our founders and the underpinnings of our culture and society are not necessarily true either all of the time. So, you know, where, 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 am, I, where am I headed with this thing? Uh, I wanted to go back a little bit to this. Uh, I had to actually do some research. I generally don't research these podcasts. They're, and most of them are extemporaneous, you know, conversations, right? But, but I had to do a little bit of digging on some of this to sort of define a little bit about what atheism and morality might might look like. And I looked in this, there's a, a very good reference book. Uh, it's called The Oxford Handbook of Atheism. I'd highly recommend it. It doesn't cost 265 bucks like this Cambridge Encyclopedia that's winging its way to me. It's much more affordable. Uh, it can be found on Amazon. Oxford Handbook of Atheism. It's a great book. Um, and there was this guy, uh, uh, there was one essay in there on atheism and morality by this guy, Eric Wallenberg. And there was a a sentence or two in there of his that really resonated for me. And uh, he, he came up with this. He said, sometimes morality refers to human moral beliefs and practices. Other times, morality refers to moral truths or facts. And which is which? Is morality really evolved from human moral beliefs and practices, as in religious practices? Or is it evolving from what we know to be factual, what we see as the facts at hand? And that, to me, 
was the, the like the essence of that. And this guy in his essay said that what he wanted to do was make the case that the question of whether there are objective moral truths is independent of the existence or non-existence of God. There are, in fact, objective moral truths in the world that we can adhere to. That sort of sort of took some of this, some of the people listening to this might think this is a little mushy in terms of its, uh, its rigor, but that sort of helped, you know, coalesce and, and pull some of this together. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. It does. You know, when I was drinking, I was never on the solid ground that I knew. I was on pretty solid intellectual and moral ground when I was a kid, as I recall. Much of what I heard and much of what I saw was true. But when I started drinking, I was between age 15 when I really started drinking and age 38 when I quit. I'm 73 now. I, I just stumbled and blundered into a lot of blind alleys that made no sense given what I knew to be true in the beginning. And as a very young kid, I was, and I was thinking about the 60s this week. I've been thinking about the 60s and the times we spent there. We were really very heedless and very sort of careless about our lives and uh, what we knew to be true about taking care of ourselves and being a responsible member of a community and all of those other things. That was a, you know, kind of a very heedless and careless time. And it really wasn't until I had a few hard knocks that I understood that there might be something wrong with the hedonism that I'd been engaged in with such vigor throughout the 60s and early 70s. But by then, there was something that actually had taken a hold of me that I didn't really understand, which is something that does, in fact, interfere with your moral center. And that was the fact that I had become addicted, that I had a physical, psychological addiction. So the disconnect between what I knew to be morally so and morally true and some of the behavior patterns and activities that I was engaged in, it might have started off as all good college hippie fun, but where it led me to in the end was a psychological and physical addiction, which had obscured all of that. So what practical use does this have to the people that are coming in today? That is just what I was going to ask you. What is this all about? <laughs> Bottom line is, if you are an atheist, nothing is wrong with you because of that. You don't need to fix your atheism. You don't need to fix your perceived reality if that's the perceived reality that you truly know to be so. You do not have to deal with that. And right? the only reason it's necessary to say this is there are people out there in the world, and a lot of them, who insist that you must, as an atheist, change that. Or you must, for example, do something called the 12 steps. <laughs> right, right. Which, you know, I find to be nothing but, no matter how you write them down, 
watered down first century Christianity. It's something that I absolutely refuse to do. You know, what's kind of interesting when you were talking about when you started this, you, you mentioned how was it Uzbekistan uh, that uh, Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan, where they had the mon- the monument to the nat- natural law and everything. And OK, so all the religion does is take what is natural and puts a lot of hocus pocus supernatural spin on it. Right. So it's like, you know, we know that to have an orderly society, we shouldn't be stealing from our neighbors and murdering people, etc. Um, and so we have to have these we have to have some sort of, you know, behavior that that's acceptable to operate as a society. And I, I think what happens and as in ancient times, they put religion as a way to coerce people in some way to obey these, obey these, right? It's all witch doctors and shamans. Yeah, and, but but what they're know, doing, they're they're laying it out like you know they lay out Hammurabi's code or they lay out um, the the Ten Commandments or whatever you know as if they put it in that language, which was totally unnecessary because. You know, it's just like the damn 12 steps. They put it in that language, but all that is, in my opinion, is what a person would naturally do anyway, leaving out all the God stuff. They put God is put into everything in, in our society because that's how people evolved, I guess. Our society's evolved to, to keep people in place, I think. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a mechanism of control. Yeah, it is. Which goes back to some of the things we've discussed in the past. Right. It is a mechanism of control, yeah. Our, and, and the way it's framed in our little world is often in a what I refer to as a passive-aggressive way in which, you know, someone is uh, actually op- op- oppressing you and telling you that you are not being oppressed simultaneously. And that's what a hammer this morality stuff can be. If you are not insane, you know what a moral center is. If you have some sort of sociopathic psychiatric disorder, you don't. And or sometimes if you're in the grip of an insane devotion to a substance, you might know in your heart of hearts, but you do that stuff anyway because of the substance. In our case, the ones, the vast, vast majority of people who are not insane and who may have some neurotic tendencies but are not totally impaired from a psychiatric point of view, when you take the alcohol away, the reasonable, more centered life appears. Yeah, I think that's true. It absolutely is true. Okay, so what's it all about? Again, the newcomer that's listening to here, what are these what are these old guys going on and on about? Well, A, you don't have to feel bad about being an atheist. It is what it is. You are what you are. And no, you can rely on yourself and your own best lights to find a way ahead. You have to find a way ahead. Now, in my case, I'd say it's absolutely impossible to find the way ahead if you continue to drink or use. I don't see it. I don't encounter people who are drinking and using and really finding their way ahead. They're dealing in the shadow world. They're dealing in a world of dreams. But I'll be goddamned if I'm going to substitute the world of dreams 
that I lived in all those years using all that alcohol. If I'm going to substitute that world of dreams for another one. That's interesting. I'm not substituting one world of dreams for another. I'm not substituting my alcoholism for your delusions. I'm not going to subscribe to that, which is back to that phrase, which is going to be very problematic for many, self-reliance. Because if I'm not going to rely on you and your ideas, whose ideas do I have to rely on? No, I, I totally think that self-reliance is is very important. It's critical. And it's... Uh... Yeah, it, it's really, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, you know, my story and how I got sober. And unfortunately, self reliance was, um, you would be shamed for being self reliant, you know, but self reliance is incredibly important for one's self esteem, for just being able to manage your life, uh, to have some degree of control. It's, it's what it's all about. In my opinion, it's what, it's what getting sober and being in recovery is about is, is, is having, is learning to be self-reliant. It's incredibly important. And it's too bad that there's a large percentage of people out there in the recovery community. And I don't want to get, get into debates with them. I don't give a damn how somebody gets sober, but it is a shame that the idea is put across to other people. You know, it's okay if you believe that for yourself, but to put it across to someone else that they can't be self-reliant, that's an issue. It causes damage. And I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to. Yeah. yeah I, it, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting here reading my damn paper. People are going to be able to read it. It's going to be connected to this thing. But I'll just go to one paragraph in here where I think I touched on something that we're, that's germane to what we're just discussing here. And I say in here on the, I guess on the third page, since it's necessary for me to live in a world based on the facts as I find them, I've further discovered that there is true liberation in acknowledging the proposition that, as a lone actor in a discrete universe limited only by materialism, physicality, and the senses, that, as an individual, I have no inherent right to anyone's life, time, property, or aspirations but my own. If you are relying on yourself and your perceptions in the real world, you find out that you don't own anyone else. That's why, at long last, I have a successful marriage. And, you know, I believe that that's why, uh, despite not being the most perfect parent in the world, having been traveling the world and away a lot. And there's, it was a divorce in there and a lot of other things. I have this just to me, just very, you know, moving, astonishing relationship with my two adult daughters, because I realized very early on that they're individuals that I need to respect them and their lives. Just like I expect to have my life, and my time, and my impulses respect. And that's how you end up, even as an atheist, right? Even as a, you know, you know, hardcore, belligerent, uh, our friend Mark and the belligerent savage, right? You know, um, yeah, even as a hardcore old belligerent savage, I can have these relationships if I deal with the world in a realistic way. 
And it's impossible for active alcoholics and addicts to do do that. that. Right. No, that makes sense. What part of this do you not understand? You want to live in the world as an atheist, as an individual. But if you pour these substances on what you know to be true, you will do what you know to be wrong more often than not for yourself and others. That's very well put, John. So there we've got a moral imperative, a moral center, a moral universe to live with. You know, I why people find it necessary to have a God to be good is, of course, totally beyond me. I have no problem if you're good and you've got God. I've actually met a couple of real Christians in my life. I'm a great admirer of that, um, our amazing former president, Jimmy Carter. You know, I think he's one of the real ones, if there's such a thing as a, a real one out there. You know, I think he he lives in a total fantasy world, but he does nothing but good as he goes around the world doing whatever it is he does. I've got no argument with that, but I think he's one of the few. That's just my own, uh, you know, my own other observation. And I just always go back to whatever anyone else believes is fine with me. Just don't tell me what I need to believe. Just don't tell me that I have to conform to your belief. That's the that's where I draw the line. So, you know, if somebody's faith inspires them to get sober or to be good or whatever, good for you. But don't tell me that I need to do the same as you. That's that's the problem. And that's well, what causes harm. Well, and it causes harm to atheists. Right. Which is it does, because they're the about- one, they're the ones that don't have that faith. They're the minority in our in our society. I think that we're growing, but still a minority. Right, right. And to the young atheists that are coming around, particularly the ones that are condemned, or they think they're condemned, to going to these conventional programs and these conventional meetings, right? What they assume about you is not true. You have no obligation to, in any way, react or respond to information that someone has projected about you that comes out of their own fantasy world. Don't listen to it. Not only don't believe it, don't let them take up, and it's a cliche, but don't let them take up space in your head. Do not allow them to do that because they're going to try to do it by using this word sponsorship. They're going to try to do it by using these steps. They're going to try to do it by getting you to believe how it works, for example, or getting you to believe the chapter called, used to be called Dr. Alcoholic Addict, which is now called Acceptance is the answer, I believe they call it. They're going to try to get you to believe all of that stuff, not because it's true for you, but because that's what they want you to believe. Right. Well, unfortunately, people will assume that that we all have to believe the same, and, and that's just false. So tell me this, John. Where do you plan on going with the series? What, what, are, you, what are you going well, to write yeah, about I've got, I've got some ideas about this, and this will morph over the next, you know, months. But the next one is going to be, maybe the most difficult one is the next one. I am going to write a whole essay about personal responsibility and what it means and how important it is. Some of it may be a bit redundant from, I'm going to, of course, listen to the recordings of this and, you know, look at what's been written before and do a little bit more digging around. 
But I think that's something that needs to be gone into in depth. And it's the whole idea, the underlying idea of that uh, uh, podcast will be that human rights are conferred on the individual by people, by yourself, by men, not by God. You don't derive your human rights from off planet. That's going to be another underlying thing. Then, you know, the third podcast, I'm thinking of talking about uh, uh, in, in postulating that abstinence for the atheist alcoholic addict generally leads to the enhancement of human development. How is that development influenced and sustained by your atheism? How is your development as a human being enhanced by atheism in and of itself? Or how can atheism enhance your development as a human being? That's going to require a little bit more diving on my, on my part. And I've, all, I've, got, I've got some ideas jotted down about that one, about the third one. But then, then the fourth one, you know, uh, the note on it is since atheism is intuitive and individual and inherently of this earth, how does such a position, when well-founded, enhance a sober life? Okay. I say somewhere in the, this first essay, is this all there is? Yeah, you betcha. Okay. This is all there is. We are on this earth for a defined period of time. We don't get do-overs. When time is gone, it's gone. And now I see how short time is. I've, you know, it took, me, it, it took me far too long to appreciate the value of time. So, you know, uh, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about, in that one, about, you know, uh, how does such a position, knowing that we're only here, right? We're not anywhere else. How, how does... How does that position enhance your life? Some people are afraid of that. They think, oh my God, this is all there is. Well, that could be a great joy as well. And I want to talk a little bit, talk a little bit about that. And the other thing is, the last thing, the number five, atheists are often accused of believing in nothing. I think even Wilson says it somewhere. How can you live a life when you came from nowhere? believe nothing and are headed into the darkness. You know? They use that, okay? Oh, you believe in nothing. How can you have a meaningful life? Well, I don't think atheism is a declaration of the absence of things. I think it's a declaration of the presence of things. And, it, you know, it, but it, it puts the responsibility for framing reality on you. You know, these other things take the responsibility for framing reality and put it on someone else. Nobody said it was easy. Um, one thing I'm not going to claim in this series that is that it's easy to go through life or go through this world as an atheist. If you want easy, I can suggest any number of tabernacles to go to to find an easier way. There's buildings and buildings filled with people that will give you an instant, easy way through this existence. So if you're looking for easy, please turn this off now because you ain't going to find, you're not going to find easy here. But again, it all relates to alcohol and drugs because that's what this series is about. 
How does the responsibility to define reality for yourself or oneself affect a life without alcohol and drugs? How, in the context of defining reality for yourself, does that affect your life as a sober person? And all of this will be developed and fleshed okay. out. And well, I look forward to this. So, you know, what I'll do is I'll create a playlist uh, like atheism, atheism and recovery or something like that. So that someone who does identify as an atheist and is hearing uh, all this clamor of you got to do this, you got to do that, you know, that maybe maybe listening to these podcasts and reading what you've written will help them understand that no, there's nothing about me and my beliefs that need to change, you know. And it's it's it, yeah. So that's that's why it's important, and that's how it relates to recovery. Yeah, this this is not for Buddhists in recovery. No, or this is for an atheist. This is agnostics in recovery. This is for an atheist who could yeah. have a very difficult time. Even I mean, even most treatment centers, you know. Um, an atheist could have a difficult time if they're being presented with recovery from a moral um, plane or whatever. Well, and, there, and there are a lot of practical situ- situations in life, just like there are a lot of practical situations in life where I wouldn't suggest that anyone describe themselves as being in recovery. Uh, I wouldn't suggest going into the average courthouse in the United States and announcing to the judge and the jury that you're an atheist. Yeah, could be problematic. I would advise that. Could be a problem. Because we're a oppressed minority. So, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not Pollyanna about this. There are distinctions that are real world distinctions that are made about us. And there are, in fact, prices you pay to be honest with yourself. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.